Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. I first encountered Lori Grinker's remarkable work as a photographer in a book, After War, Veterans from a World in Conflict, where a century of war is represented by and through portraits of individuals and their haunting stories. Her other books include Dear Grinkers, a photographic series on diaspora, Six Days from 40, an installation revolving around her brother's life and his death from AIDS, and A Portrait of Audrey and All the Little Things, which considers her mother's struggles with cancer and dementia in documentary and still-life images. Grinker, for an art school photography assignment, was shooting a project on young boxers under the guidance of the legendary trainer, Costamato. Her main focus was a nine-year-old boxer, Billy Ham. While photographing him, Cuss wandered over and asked why Lori was shooting Ham when the bigger kid in the corner, working on a speed bag, would one day be the heavyweight champion of the world. The kid was then a 13-year-old Mike Tyson. Over the next decade, Lori photographed the coterie that surrounded Mike, Cuss's funeral, going home to Brownsville, old friends, trips abroad, in hotel suites, before and after fights, his relationship with Robin Givens, their wedding, their divorce, and the training and fights in between, until Tyson's first defeat, the Buster Douglas fight in 1991. Joining me to discuss her books, After War and Tyson, is Lori Grinker. So I saw a tie-in between the two books, um, having been very involved in war and a little involved in boxing, they're very hyper-masculine uh, cultures, subcultures. Um, they're uh, certainly about violence in one form uh, or another. Um, but they're different in the sense that the Tyson book is about the rise largely of a, of a great fighter, whereas after war is really about the after effects of conflict, the wounds internal and physical that you carry um, let's just talk a little bit about the concept uh, behind After War, what it is you were trying to do. Well, I, I had gone to the Middle East, um, to Israel and the West Bank in the 80s, and I just got really interested to know what people from both sides were thinking and feeling. And I... I, I found my way to Beit HaLochem, which is like a veteran's home where they had um, all kinds of physical therapy, but sports and programs for families. And I got in and I started photographing there. And I started interviewing people from each of the Israeli wars. And so I really wanted to know what it was like on the other side, uh, from the Intifada, from Lebanon, and I started interviewing people from those sides. And then it just opened up to, to all these wars. I got interested in Vietnam veterans going back to Vietnam, looking for closure, meeting with the Vietnamese who were both in the North and the South, both who they fought with and fought against. And I just started to see how these people were had more in common with each other after war than they did with some of the people they left back at home. And, and it was this shared experience 
and the human cost of war that I wanted to to um, document. Well, some of the stories are pretty horrific um, because there's text sort of describing their ordeal from physical wounds, from psychological wounds. Uh, was there a kind of commonality that you felt between all of these victims? Clearly, one commonality is that it never goes away. You live with it, and it lives on in you for the rest of your life. And you're never the same person after. And I think that for me, as somebody who, you know, would never experience war, um, I really wanted to understand what that was you know and 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 to understand the the me- mechanisms of all these wars and and instead of judging these people no matter which side they were on understanding what brought them there whether it was the politics of the place that you know or they were poor people who had no other no other way to get an education but join the military who, people who were conscripted due to colonialism, you know, in World War II from West Africa. Uh, so what brings people to war? It's not always this, you know, black and white, you know, story. Not everybody that goes wants to fight. Not everybody that joins the military does it out of allegiance to their country or because they want to be a hero. They Often it's it's because it's the only way they can afford to get money and to get an education after. And um, and then, of course, there are drafts. Um, but the women were very interesting to me because we didn't know that much about women fighting and why would women go to war. And, and you know, when I spoke to women in Eritrea who fought against the Ethiopians and they said, well, we had no choice. They were raping our neighbors and killing our fathers and so 40% of the fighting army in Eritrea were women, and they helped win the war. So it just, it gave me a really clear picture of the history of these wars, um, what it takes to recover, what what kinds of um, therapies there are in all these different countries, how similar they all are, how... So many veterans, like Vietnam veterans, would go back to other countries and really help veterans from um, the the troubles between Britain and Ireland and, and help them heal their wounds. So it's like this collective giving back almost and, and, and so forever being in war, but then being on the side of peace and trying to help those people find peace within themselves. That's what Jung called the wounded healer. Yeah. Let's talk about just a few of the pictures before we go on to the Tyson book. So is Danny, is it uh, uh, Shimon? Danny Shimoni. Shimoni, right. Talk about his situation. Well, Danny Shimoni was somebody I met that time when I first went to the Middle East, when I first stayed in Israel in 1986, I think it was, could have been a little earlier. And um, I had photographed him, yeah, then when I first went and he was swimming, uh, diving in 
and he was missing his ankles and feet. And when I went back years later, when I was actually working on this book, because then it was a story just about that center, um, I had to find him and they helped me find him because they recognized his stumps because mm. you couldn't see his head. It was him diving into right. the pool. Right, on the cover of your and book. He, oh. Yeah, and he wanted to be in the project. And he was a, a manager at Hertz Rent-A-Car or something. And he, you know, he just talked to me about his experience. And he, he's, he was in Lebanon and I never got to go to Lebanon for the book. So we just made the chapter just him. But, um, you know, the picture just became this very peaceful, meditative image of him. Just he was floating basically in that because I couldn't recreate him diving in. And um, so, and, you know, of course, I interviewed each person and he was he was very young. And I think most of those people just you know, don't really understand what they were fighting for in, in a lot of these situations. Maria Latifa, you, you shoot her in Cuba. Maria was one of the people who went to Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and along with Tina Modati, the photographer, they, she helped start the International Brigades. And they won. She had been a, a teacher of um, Che's children. So that's why there's a picture of him in her house. But she and her husband, I think they might have been kicked out of Cuba for their politics. And then they went to Spain to um, help fight in the Spanish Civil War. And is it Hitak Mak? Is that right? Hatimak. Hatimak. So Hatimak. Uh, in 1989, I got support from Life magazine to go back to to go to Vietnam with American veterans who are going back looking for closure. And one group were bringing this prosthetic technology there, and they would. This was in the north of Vietnam, and they were going to the villages, and they set up uh, labs, and it got more sophisticated as time went on but they would fit each person's stump at first and then go back to the United States, have these prostheses made, and then go back and give them to the people. And I had been there when they were going back just by chance, so I got to go with them. And so she had the, the new leg and she hardly used it. She was still using this heavy old wooden leg that they made there because she said she only had one of the American ones and she wanted to keep it for special occasions as if it was like a pair of her nice shoes. But um, yeah, and she she fought in the North against the Americans. I mean, I like the book having covered conflicts because the people that you portray in the book, especially those who are grievously wounded, are pretty much rendered invisible by the wider society. We don't see them. We don't hear their story unless they're willing to read from the kind of approved 4th of July script. I think after the Gulf War and the invasion of Iraq, at least American veterans became more vocal 
And I think when there were so many problems at VA hospitals and problems with benefits, they became more vocal in that and there were more people fighting for them for their rights. But I do think it's still a bit under the radar. And I think some people just want to come back and get back to normal. And it takes a while to, for many of them to see what they're going through. Or like when I've given talks, there are people who, through the stories of these veterans, and I, I guess I could read a couple of quotes if you want sure. to. Sure, yeah. But um, they learned about their parents, their fathers mostly, who never talked about their experience in Vietnam, but they began to understand it by reading other people's stories in my book. And so that that was very cathartic for them. And, and that really made my 15 years of documenting these stories worth it. Why don't you read the section about Oleg? Okay, so Oleg... Um, was a Russian soldier who fought in Afghanistan. And he lost his hands. And he, he said, I was brought up thinking that the capitalist countries and the communist countries were enemy. So when I joined the army, I believed I was defending our Soviet homeland. We thought we were helping people who asked for it. Half a year into the war, my patriotism faded. In my dreams, I still have hands. When I wake up, I can even feel my fingers and tighten my fist. Although it's there, it's not there. It's as though there's something invisible covering my hands, and that's why I can't see them. And then we think about the Russians today who are being forced to right. fight in Ukraine. Let's talk about Tyson. Uh, the uh, so you're in there before anyone knows who Tyson is. He's living with Customato. I found it interesting in the introduction, you kind of uh, began with your own wayward path towards <laughs> school. Um, uh, I guess that gives you a certain street credibility. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my editor actually, well, anyway, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about details of it, but I, yeah, I guess that was what it was for, All the right, street right. credibility. But it was also that, you know, it was true. I was looking for a way out and I was a messed up kid. And um, certainly my life wasn't anywhere as near difficult as Tyson's or some of these kids up there. But seeing them made me, I guess, you know, appreciate my life and, and you know, the ease of which I had with a lot of things. Um, and it just opened me up to this whole other world that wasn't my world. And I started to see how boxing was helping these kids. And Billy Ham was interesting to me because he was tiny and he had muscles. Yeah. He was not nine, nine years old. Nine year old with muscles. And there was a girl named Nadia who was a girl and oh, she was older, actually she, older than most of the kids, but she, and she's still up there. So I was focusing on this female 
and this nine-year-old. And that's when Cus would say, but you should focus on Mike. He's going to be the next champion. And to me, Mike was this big kid who looked like a boxer. And it seemed obvious. So I wanted the anomalies. And um, But of course, Mike was part of the group. So I would be photographing him because he was there training with them. And they were a little gang of kids. And they would laugh together and do their chores in the house. And well, they, those be, they were living at Customato's house. So there was a group that would live there all the time, a small group. Mike was one of them. And then Billy Ham would come on weekends. His, his parents lived in a trailer and his father kept the greens of a golf course. You know, it was like mow the, the greens or something like that. And um, so on weekends... He would be up. He would be there to learn boxing, and he loved it. So there were probably a few other kids that came on weekends, but and there were a couple of others that were were living there at the time. What having observed the culture before we get into Tyson, uh, and it is its own culture. What did you? Uh, what are your takeaways from it? How, how did you? How would you define it? Well, I was a student when I first went up there and I was a staunch feminist from my teen years and I found it a bit anti-female or sexist in some of the conversations and I would try to correct them. I would try to teach them and then I realized if I'm going to be doing this, I'm not there to change who they are. I'm there to document their lives. So that, you know, taught me that there's certain boundaries you don't pass when you're being a journalist. And, you know, I was an art student, but this was a journalism class and it was my first and only journalism class. And so I didn't never study journalism, but I learned that lesson there. And so I, I was more the observer and what drew me to it was the camaraderie between them all, the support between them all, uh, this kind of crazy household of Cus and Camille and these kids, you know, it's like these, this older couple taking care of these, this mix of kids and all connected to boxing. Jim Jacobs was my entree into the world, and he was the co-manager. He was also a handball champion and a comic book collector. And I had photographed him for a seminar that was being taught at the New School on Muhammad Ali, and he was one of the guests. And he started talking about Cuss and the kids upstate, and I said, oh, I have to do a photo project. Um, can I come upstate? And he talked to Cuss, and they let me come up. So, you know, visually, it was very interesting. You had all these different ages of kids. You had this older couple. You had the gym, which was a fantastic atmosphere. Um, and you had the training. And the training was intense and almost like choreography at times. Um, the stretching and the movements and the, you know, the concentration. And, and what was really interesting about Mike, was how studious he was. He was so determined. He Every word Cus said, he hung on to. Mm. And 
and he would read books and he would watch fight films up in the attic. You have a picture of that. we watching like, like looks yeah. like Super 8 movies or something up yeah. in the attic. Because Jim owned the big fights with Bill Caton and they were the co-managers. So they had a fight film archive. And so he had access to everything. And I remember taking those pictures. I had no idea how to do that. It was so dark and obviously it was all film and I was just learning how to take pictures. But, um, you know, and they laughed a lot. And, but Camille kept a really tight ship and they all did their chores and they cleaned up after dinner. You have a couple fold-out pages. My favorite is the full th- folds out into three pictures of Customato, who's in a bathrobe. He's yes. probably in his 70s. Who knows how old he is at the time? Yeah, I mean. Uh, showing the peekaboo punch. That right. what it's called, right? Peekaboo style. Right. Um, so that was one of the weekends I stayed up there and we were in the living room and it was, you know, after dinner and Cuss was in his bathroom and he just starts, you know, it's boxing all the time. And so the guys were sitting around and he just started doing his thing. And so I, I love that series because it's actually Five pictures, I think. Oh, so five? it opens up with uh, three, and then you fold it the other way, and there are right, two. Right, right, that's right. Yeah, it's really fun, and and I think it's just fun to see this old guy in his bathroom right. doing that. I think a lot of people who don't follow boxing don't understand how complicated it is. Um, you have a quote from Tyson in there, which I think is true about how it, the best boxer is not the brute or something, but the one who can think, you know, who's smart. I think that's also true. Um, uh, and I thought that you captured that complexity in the book. Thank you. I think that, you know, that it, you know, Tyson was saying that it's a thinking man's sport, and I didn't know that, and I agree that a lot of people don't know that. And that's certainly what Cuss brought to it. And, you know, I think until you're studying it, maybe nobody knows that. Yeah. Maybe you just think it's it's about being as strong as you can and punching. But it's their strategy. And, and even photographing it and most sports, and I'm not a sports photographer by any means, except for doing some boxing a long time ago, but you have to anticipate what's going to happen next. And so if you don't know all the moves and, and don't know how this other fighter thinks, it's, it's, you know, almost like chess. You know, you have to be looking at everything and know what's coming next and know what can happen if you move one way. And um, that's what interested me in it. You know, I don't like boxing and... But once I could see the intelligence of it, it was interesting to watch. So you meet Tyson. He's a kid. You follow him. There's a picture. He goes back to Brownsville in his white Rolls Royce. There's pictures in the hotel suite of him and Robin Given. But uh, it it is this meteoric rise. I think he becomes world champion when he's 20. Um, But he changes and not in good ways. And that's also part of what you're documenting. 
Yeah, well, what what happened was actually the white Rolls Royce is Catskill and the blue Rolls Royce is Brown. All right. So he went through well, at least two Rolls Royces during my time. Um, he, you know, I think I think he had or has a good soul and a, and a generous heart. And I think he let everybody in and not everybody was interested in Mike. They were interested in themselves and what they could get from it. I think Robin and her mother were like that. Um, but they really did seem like they were in love in the beginning. They did fight a lot, but um, it, it was hard not to believe that they weren't in love. But then you would see her mother on the phone all the time and suddenly things were happening, you know? So you could see all these plots and you could see all these people arrive suddenly that were now a part of the entourage. And then Don King is there. And, and you know, from the inside, you could see these changes happening and you could see Mike changing. Um, of course, he had all this money, which he never had before. And... Just before that, he lost Cuss. So I think if Cuss hadn't died, things would have been very different. And then, of course, Jim Jacobs died. And Mike didn't want to stay with Cus with um, Bill Caton. And Don King was already working on him, even though Mike had once said he'd never go with Don King. He ended up with Don King. And, you know, I just think he, he became less and less reliable for me and other photographers who had appointments set up, assignments set up with magazines, and he just wouldn't show. And mine were usually a little easier than some of these who came with a big production team and lighting and, you know, and cost a lot of money and he didn't show for them either. So for me, it was, you know, I, I had started working on After War and I wanted to do other things and I didn't want to, you know, I never intended to make my career about Mike Tyson. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. It was really dumb luck. And well, not so dumb. I mean, I picked a good story, but I never was going to stay there forever. And I certainly wasn't a celebrity photographer. But I think when I put all the pictures together, that's when I started to see the breadth of what I had. You know, it was a lot of trips up and back and up and back. And I went with a lot of different writers and I'd be on assignments different weekends. And I worked for the big fights, doing some of the fights for them. But then all the behind the scenes stuff was mine. And I just did that on my own. Um, but there were a lot of things Mike wouldn't let me go to. He never let me go to the big parties. I'm sure he didn't want me to see what was going on there or he didn't want it documented. Um, well, you have in the book, I think, what mothers are slipping him phone numbers of their daughters or something. That's when we were, we were driving and we were on in traffic in New York City, like on the BQE or somewhere going over to Brooklyn. And, and she literally handed him a piece of paper with her daughter's right. number. So, you know, people were feeding him and pushing his buttons and and 
like enabling him. And he, I think, just went back to the troubled places that Cuss really helped him focus on getting out of. Well, the, he, he becomes surrounded by predators, really. I mean, I yeah. think you intimate that that includes Robin and her mother. It looked like that to me. We we came back from Japan together, Robin and I, and, and her mother came to pick her up from the airport and said, oh, we'll give you a ride back, but first come to New Jersey. And, you know, you're flying all night and you get there in the morning. And so, I, of course, I say yes. And we go and I'm taking pictures of Robin in these rooms of this mansion in Bernardsville, New Jersey. And then that night, Mike calls me and he's like, so what'd you think of the house? So then they bought it, you know? So it seemed very well choreographed, I guess. When you watched him as a professional, uh, as you know, I boxed as part of the YMCA team in Boston. And I remember my coach telling me that I would never make a good boxer because I didn't have enough hate in my heart. Um, He had an extremely troubled childhood. Uh, There was obviously a lot of anger there. What about that phenomena of hate in terms of Tyson or maybe even in terms of the other boxers? Well, I don't know about the other boxers because that was such a short part of my time there. Um, but a couple of other boxers that I photographed uh, were Roberto Duran and Wilfredo Benitez. And I don't know about anger, but they, well, they weren't sophisticated in ways that Mike was. Maybe they weren't as intelligent. Um, certainly Muhammad Ali was, and I got to photograph him. And I don't think he had hate. Uh, you know, for Mike, yeah, I mean, all the troubles of his youth apparently fueled his, his abilities to punch like that. And, um, but he was an extraordinary physique. I mean, he, he was so developed at age 14 that, you know, they used to say that they had to show his birth certificate and, or to get him matches in the fights these boxing clubs because nobody believed he was really 14 and these clubs lied all the time but Mike didn't have to lie I mean he was he was that age um, and that well developed Um, but I I think through the book you see the you see the humanity in him and you see his humor and I think some of the love of the people around him as well. Well, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, the, right. the guys that I boxed with had came very rough backgrounds, and there was a lot of anger at, at the circumstances. And yet, I think that camaraderie is was perhaps the most attractive thing about it, um, uh, for certainly for me. And amongst ourselves, there was a great deal of kindness and sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't preclude, I think, that uh, it, it becomes an outlet for anger, even rage. Um, uh, and, I, and I think you're, you're probably right about Muhammad Ali, but 
there are other fighters. Foreman would be an example that I think would uh, admit to bringing that kind of anger into the ring. Mm-hmm. And then they are brothers after. Sometimes. You know? <laughs> right? Sometimes. <laughs> well, I mean, right after in the ring, they seem to be respectful of each other and and... I don't know. I mean, it's a world I haven't been a part of right. in such a long time. And and I, you know, Bruce Silverglade, who owns Gleason's Gym, wrote a piece for the book. And he's such a wonderful man. And he's certainly seen everything boxing has. And we did a book signing there. And I, a couple of years ago, I brought my students to the gym and some of them started photographing boxers. And it's it's kind of interesting that there you know there are champions who have money now but they don't there's not been anyone like Tyson no. and Ali and I don't know if there ever will be um there's also so many people now doing stories and studies on the damaging effects of boxing of course brain damage and and all that and um but there are kids there who are from Brownsville or East New York or these neighborhoods that are still really rough and they're so dedicated and, you know, they're from a single mom home or something. So, but they're, they don't seem angry, you know, they just seem to want a way out. Well, the, the, the saddest part was watching that is, and they recognize perhaps the only way out. And then, uh, they have a fight where they just get clobbered and yeah. they realize they aren't going to be a pro. They aren't going to be um, I, and And then you would just watch them deflate. They they realize they would spend the rest of their life where they were as a pot washer, construction worker. That was even mm-hmm. harder to watch than whatever physical beating they took. Uh, yeah. We're going to stop there. That was Lori Grinker on her books After War and Tyson. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com. <laughs>